Good morning, everyone. When I was six years old, I discovered buried treasure. It wasn't technically buried. I found it by looking under my big brother's bed. My mother would have called that a distinction without a difference. And some might question uh, whether my discovery really qualifies as treasure. But when you're six years old and you find your older brother's comic book stash, that's as good as it gets. It was like Christmas and birthday and last day of school all rolled into one. In retrospect, it also explained to me why my brother was not class valedictorian. He, he had quite a collection. He had Superman and Batman and the Green Lantern and the Flash, Joe Palooka and all the rest. I happily immersed my six-year-old self into the world of superheroes. A world where might makes right, where the strongest always win, where strength and power are king. It was intoxicating stuff. I also discovered a particular advertisement that seemed to be on the inside back cover of every one of those comics. It was an ad selling something from a guy named Charles Atlas. The, the ad was a story in cartoon form. Uh, some skinny guy and his girl are at the beach. Some bully comes up and kicks sand in his face, embarrassing him in front of his girlfriend. So skinny guy goes home and orders Charles Atlas's bodybuilding miracle, returns very quickly, it seems, to the beach, a sculpted Adonis, and promptly puts the bully in his place. Ah, sweet justice. We love those stories. I know I did. It was like a real-life version of what I saw in the comics with the superheroes. I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. We love it when Superman or Wonder Woman or, or whoever the flavor of the month is in superhero land rises up and takes care of all the bullies and the bad guys and puts them in their place. And I don't think it's an overstatement to suggest that this view of power dominates in our world. Might makes right. Only the strong survive. We're number one. I think I was in seminary before I began to seriously question that view of life, mostly by seeing how radically different the kingdom functions. I, I discovered that in the kingdom of God, uh, things operate very, very differently than the world I encountered in my comic books. I discovered that the gospel is full of what I call eye rollers, ideas that cause an incredulous world to roll its collective eyes in disbelief. Blessed are the poor. The meek will inherit the earth. Last will be first. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. 
Become like little children. If you want to be great, be a servant. And right here in our text for the eighth Sunday of Pentecost, when I am weak, then I am strong. Charles Atlas would surely be rolling his eyes. And if we're honest, we have to admit that we have our doubts about weakness having much of anything to do with strength. But there it is in black and white right in the Bible. 2 Corinthians is widely considered to be the most revealing autobiographical source we have on the Apostle Paul. And chapters 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Corinthians are sometimes referred to as Paul's fool's speech because of his admitted reluctance and sense of foolishness to be talking and writing the way he is there. Apparently there are in Corinth some who question Paul's apostolic authority, some who would even usurp his leadership by boasting about their own super-spirituality and authority, even claiming to have been given great visions. Reading these three chapters, you see that very, very reluctantly, Paul fights back by sharing his own apostolic credentials. He describes the sufferings and the persecutions that he has endured as part of his apostolic life. And here in chapter 12, ever so hesitantly, he owns up to the fact that he too has had some revelations. That's surely one of the great understatements of all time. But given the way that Paul's adversaries have touted their special insights into God, Paul admits that his revelations could easily result in an inflated sense of self. But he has been spared this. Yes, he has been transported to paradise, but as he puts it, lest he should be conceited about this, literally over-uplifted, he has also been given a protracted and debilitating weakness that pins him in humility to the earth and independence to the Lord. Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. I see that as Paul's concession, that he views this thorn as a way of keeping him grounded and a constant reminder to him that even as an apostle, he lives an ordinary, he lives as an ordinary mortal in a fallen world. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to the exact nature of Paul's thorn. Uh, Some have suggested it refers to the, the, the sort of incessant persecution from the Jews that he experienced. Others believe it had to do with epilepsy. Some say Paul had a sort of chronic inflammation of the eyes. Some suggest he had a speech impediment. Others talk about recurring bouts of malaria. There is no real consensus But whatever it is, Paul prays three times that this thorn might be removed. His prayer is answered, but not how he imagined or hoped. God tells him that the thorn would remain, but he would never lack sufficient grace to deal with whatever should come his way. The answer is not healing or removal of the thorn. The answer is grace. 
that reminds us that sometimes it is the unanswered prayer that becomes a most significant step in our spiritual journey. Sometimes our weaknesses are the most direct path to strength. To amplify this, I want to focus in on three claims that Paul makes in this short text. First of all, he says, I have a thorn. And then he says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And then finally he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. I have a thorn. If there were superheroes in the early church, Paul certainly was at the top of the list. Just read his apostolic resume here in 2 Corinthians. But in revealing his thorn, Paul openly embraces his humanity and all the disqualifiers that might undermine some claim to superstardom. At first glance, in the midst of a contest about authority, uh, one would hardly expect Paul to make this kind of admission. Conventional wisdom would hold that leaders need to polish their image. They need to maintain their aura of invincibility, especially when their leadership is being challenged. But there's a bigger issue at stake here for Paul, and it's his relationship to the faith community. Paul is unwilling to secure his leadership and apostolic authority by compromising his understanding of the church. As you know, Paul sees the church as a family, a place of transparency, a place where burdens and joys and sorrows are openly and honestly shared. And it certainly couldn't have been easy for Paul to confess his weaknesses to this particular church, because it included those who have been so critical and judgmental towards him. Living open, honest lives where even our weaknesses are known is not at all common, frankly, not even in the church. But Paul's honest admission here demonstrates that there are no superheroes in the church. None of us are superhuman. We're just human. Some of us struggle to accept that. And sometimes our reticence to accept being human blinds us to the good news of God's grace. When I first came here as pastor in the early 1980s, we had one morning service at 11, and when the college was in session, that service was in Wesley Chapel. Communion in Wesley Chapel was an ordeal. That's what led me to introduce intinction. It required 36 stewards, a thousand or so of those little bitty glasses that had to be filled and then washed, and choreography worthy of a Broadway musical. One of the last pieces of advice my predecessor, Mark Abbott, gave me was such Never let Fred Drexler talk you into having a communion rehearsal. And if you really get that line, you've been here a long time. One Sunday, we were doing communion, and I wished we'd had a rehearsal. It was a fiasco. Somebody dropped a tray. 
The trays were meeting in the middle of the rows instead of the alternating rows. Just about everything that could go wrong went wrong, and I was fuming about it inwardly. And afterwards, I was... I actually started apologizing to God for the fiasco we had made of the means of grace. And the Lord said to me, you know, if human beings could get things right, you wouldn't need to do communion at all. Our humanity is the opportunity for God's grace to come to us. Now, I'm guessing that none of us here can really identify with Paul at the point of his revelations and mystical experiences, but all of us know exactly what he means when he talks about thorns. Maybe not as precisely as messengers of Satan, but as poignant and oftentimes painful reminders of our mortality. The fact is we all have thorns. We all have weaknesses. I got thorns. You've got thorns. All God's children got thorns. Sounds almost lyrical, doesn't it? So here I am preaching to Briar Patch Wesleyan. A gathering of people with thorns. All of us have weakness and infirmities that hinder us in various ways. And and right here in the community of faith, in the church, is where we should be openly ourselves, thorns and all. But what happens? Years ago, I read a short article by Charles Swindoll entitled Lessons from a Tavern. And Swindoll was trying to answer the question, why are people so loyal to their neighborhood bar? And his conclusion was, it's because it's the one place they can go and just be themselves. And then he ended with this line, which has haunted me for years. The Christian church is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. Who wants to get shot? So unlike Paul, we often try to hide the thorns. A while back, I was with my family in New York City, and we went to a New York Knicks game at Madison Square Garden. And I'm watching, before the game starts, stuff happening in front of me. And I see this guy emerge, and he's selling these big, huge, we're number one fingers made out of foam. I mean, they were exorbitantly priced. It's the New York Knicks, for goodness sakes. I mean, they're... The only thing they've been number one in is basketball futility. (laughs) And and I'm thinking, boy, good luck selling those things. He sold out before he got to my row. I'm thinking how ridiculous it is to see a bunch of people spending a lot of money so they can get a finger and wave it and say, we're New York Knicks and we're number one. But they're fans, which is short for fanatics. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really mean a thing. How much more silly it is to see the elaborate steps we take to preserve our images of self-sufficiency and wholeness 
in church of all places. Even at the risk of his leadership, Paul is not willing to play that game. I was trying to think this week about how the Old Testament reading about David becoming Israel's king spoke to this. They must have thought, you know, this guy killed Goliath. We're getting us a superhero. Little did Israel know that in accepting David, that it was getting a very flawed man. A man who would be broken through choices that he made. Choices that would follow him and his family and the entire nation for all of his lifetime and beyond. David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he was a superhero. David came to understand that a broken spirit and a contrite heart are what God is really looking for. Read the Psalms. They're a testament of a person who accepts their brokenness before God. There are no superheroes in the kingdom. But that's okay because Paul has God's word on the fact that his power is perfected in weakness. I doubt that there's any greater difference or contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world than in the way that power is conceived and demonstrated. The kingdoms of the world operate on the principles of might makes right, that the rich and the powerful are always on top, so to be weak and vulnerable is to be avoided at all costs, even at the cost of pretending not to be weak and vulnerable. But perhaps part of Paul's revelation is that he has shown that in God's kingdom, human weakness is God's way. His modus operandi, if you will. Paul sees that instead of slowing him down, his thorn worked to save him from spiritual pride and therefore to open him to God's amazing grace, allowing Christ's power to rest on him. Remember that this is the same Paul who wrote earlier in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And as you well know, some of these vessels are in pretty sorry shape. Unfortunately, human beings from Adam and Eve onward have demonstrated a disheartening capacity to forget that and to lapse back into self-sufficiency. I can do it myself. Our weaknesses, says Paul, aim at preventing us from falling into that grave mistake. And if you think that God's use of weakness is some novel Pauline idea, you haven't been paying attention to the Bible. To Abraham, a landless, childless senior citizen, God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. To Moses... A speech-impaired, runaway felon? God says, you're going to be my mouthpiece before Pharaoh. To Gideon, cowardly, shamefully hiding himself in the winepress, God says, hail, valiant warrior. When Israel's choosing the successor to King Saul, this imposing physical specimen of a man, God bypasses all the strapping sons of Jesse and says, there's the run of the litter. Let's take him. And when it comes time for the incarnation, God entrusts himself to a peasant teenage girl. 
From the beginning, God has chosen the weak and the unimpressive to confound the so-called wisdom of the strong. But even all of that would not adequately prepare us for what God does in Jesus Christ. Paul teaches us throughout his writings that the cross itself is the ultimate example of how God operates in the world. And I fear that our common understanding of the cross leaves us woefully short of grasping its true significance in revealing God's way in the world. We too often simply look at the cross, well, Jesus took my place there so my sins can be forgiven, and we leave it at that. That is a woefully narrow reading of Calvary. We need to see how the cross was God's frontal assault on the whole notion of power in this world. The cross, as it was commonly employed in history, was the ultimate expression of exerting power over someone, to crucify a victim, to hang them naked, completely exposed to everyone, was the way that power expressed itself. It was a way of saying to the crucified person, you are weak, you are utterly helpless, we have absolute control over you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Except, of course, when the person on that cross is God himself. Willingly surrendered to this horrible fate as the ultimate expression of his love for humankind and all creation. In Colossians 2, Paul says that in the cross, God has turned the tables on the principalities and powers. God has disarmed the powers and authorities. He has made a public spectacle of them. God takes the ultimate expression of weakness and uses it to make a laughingstock of the powers of darkness. Weakness in God's hands becomes a redemptive energy that overcomes anything. And that puts a whole new spin on my power is made perfect in weakness. Thus Paul's conclusion, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom. The whole idea of power stood on its head. And all of us thorn-infested humans can discover that when we are weak, we are strong. We discover that in God's kingdom, we don't have to hide our infirmities and weaknesses. We don't have to posture and disguise our true selves from one another. But we are free to glory in our thorns, knowing that God uses them to demonstrate the sufficiency of his grace and the perfection of his power. Now, as you know, delighting in weaknesses, hardships, and difficulties is not exactly business as usual in the human experience. You have to be deeply committed to the values of God's kingdom before you can get to this point. But human life has a way of reminding us that we are completely dependent upon God and his grace and that we dare not fall into the trap of thinking that we are self-sufficient. And we also know this, that God's grace is particularly abundant upon those who understand and embrace their weakness. I want you to know that there is grace, there is power that is only available to us when we embrace our brokenness and weakness and allow God to use it for his glory and our sanctification.
And so here's the deal, folks. You accept the brokenness and weakness of your life in exchange for God's power resting on you. I told you earlier that I was in seminary before I seriously began to question my ideas about power and strength. But it just wasn't in the classroom that that was happening. My first year at seminary, I was invited up in the central Ohio to speak at a youth weekend at a church, Friday, Saturday, twice on Sunday. My younger brother lived about 20 minutes from the church, so I decided to stay with him. Problem is, is he had a cat. What kryptonite is to Superman, cats are to me. It wasn't so bad Friday night. I'd only been there a couple of hours, so I was just sort of stuffed up and coughing a little bit. But then when I slept there all night, the next day, I was in full-blown asthma attack. And I was using my inhaler way more than I should. I could not get a deep breath. And I remember driving to the church that night just freaking out. Thinking, I can't preach. I can't breathe. And I, God, you got to help me. And I coughed and wheezed all the way through the beginning of the service. The minute I stood up to preach, I was breathing like one of those marathon runners from Kenya. As soon as I stopped preaching, the asthma came back. That happened two more times the next day. And I drove back to seminary thinking a lot about my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. By the way, ever since that experience, I always specify my cat allergy when I go speak somewhere. It's one thing to know that God can overcome our weaknesses. It's quite another thing to be presumptuous. We human beings, we are, we are walking paradoxes. People capable of being the recipients of God's wisdom and revelation, capable of proclaiming the very words of God with power to a needy world, and yet left to deal with all of the possibilities of our mortality and human frailties. Possibilities, what, what, what an intriguing word. Philosophers sometimes use the language of possible worlds to clarify an abstract idea or to construct an argument. For example, there's a possible world where the painting dogs playing poker is considered great art. I have relatives who think they live in that world. Or... Josh, my son, there's a possible world where you will get a new car for graduation. Who says philosophy isn't practical? There is a possible world where weakness is actually strength. And that's the world you and I were initiated into at our baptisms. But as long as we prefer the superhero approach to dealing with bullies and issues in our lives, we are holding it at arm's length and it remains only a possible world. Blessed are the weak. For some, that's just one more eye roller. For others, at best, it's just a possible world. 
But for others, including many of you here today, that's the world you live in. So as Paul sees it, you can moan and whine about everything that's wrong in your life. Or you can see all of those infirmities and weaknesses as potential conduits for God's sufficient grace. While mystical ecstasy may have all the appearance of divine power, the reality is otherwise. Blessed are the weak. Christ draws near to us and gives us his grace and power in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you how often we try to hide our weaknesses and our infirmities from one another. That must grieve you, and it certainly hurts us and inhibits the power of the church. Help us today to rest in the sufficiency of your grace, to understand that your power is perfected in weakness. And help us to to live our lives in such a way that the power of Christ might rest upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.